Let's pray. Lord, we're here before you on this beautiful day celebrating new life in Jesus and also recognizing the beauty of femininity. And I pray now, Lord, that you would bless us as we do. May we come away with a greater sense of who we are in Christ and who we are to be. And thank you now that we can share this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, our society is not so slowly unraveling. And uh, it's all around us, and the challenges are large. In the midst of that unraveling, we find the civil communication difficult to have. I would contend with you that the church and Christian families should be the best place to have dialogues of differing understanding. I hate to call them opinions, and of course I wouldn't call them all convictions. But I do believe that God has in mind a purpose in letting community develop understanding. Now, that doesn't make me a communitarian where all of a sudden I believe the masses determine truth. But it does make me humble enough to believe that there should be an ongoing dialogue. And this morning I want to have a dialogue with you because it appears to me we are in a very dangerous place as a society. Back in 1814, the mathematician Pierre-Simon Laplace wrote a very large volume, actually several volumes in the end, called the Mechanique Celeste. It was basically a mathematic description of the universe. He presented his treatise to Napoleon, and Napoleon was abhorred with the fact that in all of these pages of writing, there was no mention of God. And he wrote or said to Pierre, he said, you've written this huge book on the system of the world and there's no mention of the author of the universe. To which Laplace said, I have no need of that hypothesis. This morning I'm here before you suggesting that we are not many months or years away from a complete societal reset. And by that, I don't mean primarily economic, although the Bible teaches us that not being able to buy or sell will be part of the leverage of conformity in the end. But I'm here to suggest to you today that there is a colossal battle on for the soul of the United States of America and the world, and the devices in our pockets are facilitating the dialogue and the demise. And this morning, I believe it would be important for us to be out in front of the dialogue and be the head and not the tail. Sir William Thackeray once wrote, it is not dying for a faith that is so hard. Every man of every nation has done that. It is living up to it that is difficult. Perhaps what will be more difficult about this morning's subject matter is that it might require the change of paradigm or a frame, the system through which we look at things. Perhaps being the frog in the kettle is more true than we realize. And it might be that secular society is out in front of us in starting the dialogue. I want to talk with you this morning about a definition of 21st century womanhood. The title doesn't say 21st century Christian womanhood, although perhaps it should. But what are the rights and the roles and the responsibilities? 
We live in a society that's become very fixated on license, which turns people into a licentious group of people. There's something about law and the restrictions on the unrenewed heart that are important for protecting civility. I would suggest to you that the battle going on in the eastern portions of Ukraine today is a slap in the face to what civility is supposed to be. And perhaps postmodernism or modernism is much more fragile than we realize. And perhaps there's a reason. And maybe after 50 plus years of a societal revolution, maybe we're coming to the end of that moment when we think to ourselves societally, I have no need of that hypothesis. Thank you, no thank you. Why do I say these things? Because you could not turn on your radio or your television this week and not be confronted with a major showdown that is not just political, it is moral, and moral people should have something to say about moral issues. Calibrating conscience is a role of the church, a collective role, and it does not happen casually or easily. If you were to turn on your radio, depending on which radio stations you should choose to listen to, you would find yourself caught in the crossfire of a very evangelistic dialogue for or against an old feud that began in the heart of a Texas family by a lady named Roe and a man named Wade. And so it wouldn't be too terribly surprising to find that southern states, including Texas, are pushing this thing to the forefront again. And of course, as I toggle back and forth between right-leaning talk radio and left-leaning national public radio, I don't know that I could have listened less than five minutes without the subject matter of Samuel Alito's leaked uh, preliminary draft of a, of a ruling being the subject matter of dialogue. And so this morning, I think it might be fitting for us to do just a little recollection of civil history and understanding of how we got to where 50 to 60 million unborn lives have been snuffed out while Christians enjoyed the party and went forward merrily on their way. It's interesting to note what these abortion statistics look like. Based on the latest state-level data, 40 states reporting, approximately 980 abortions took place in the United States in 2020, 980,000. That's up from approximately 887,000 abortions in 2019 and 872,000 in 2018. Abortion is an interesting thing. It peaked about 1990, and it wouldn't be proper for a fair discussion of the subject matter to go on without me recognizing that every year for the last 50 years almost, as many people in one year have died under the skillful or not so skillful hand of medical professionals as have died in two years during the COVID pandemic. And almost nothing has been said about it. And it wasn't lost upon me when I saw the cartoon of a woman holding up a big placard that said, mandate vaccines, and written across her shirt was, my body, my choice. These inconsistencies are not comfortable for us to talk about in our society, but perhaps they should be, because perhaps truth can only be found in dialogue. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that 
what you're watching has very telltale signs of prophetic ramification in that as David Cole, when he wrote his book, Engines of Liberty, How Activists, Citizen Activists Can Change Constitutional Law, it's the story of a former ACL high-powered lawyer writing how we went from believing marriage was one thing to believing marriage is something else. It's not been that long ago that we in law believed it was between a man and a woman, and of course we no longer believe that. And what I'm suggesting to you is that culture changes before laws change. And so the culture was being changed because by beholding we were changing. And our threshold, threshold of abhorrence with, with immorality has lessened and lessened and lessened and lessened. So I find it very strange that in 2022, we could have discussions about the personal safety of Supreme Court justices over the idea that what has been up for almost 50 years is about to be upside down, and it might become illegal to have an abortion in many states. And what I'd like for you to think about is this, is that if cultures change before laws change, and that's how citizen activism works, and that's how media works, then how do we really think after 50 years of exercising all of our liberties, our reproductive, our reproductive private privileges without the corresponding public responsibilities, how do we really think after 50 years of doing this, everybody's just going to open wide and swallow and say, that's okay? In effect, what I'm suggesting to you, not so subtly, is this, and that is, if this is turned upside down, and if we find our nation actually retreating from 50 years of license and licentiousness, perhaps before this can really be stomached or embraced or accepted, other things are going to have to come upon this globe and this planet that would make us surrender without so much of a fight over issues that seem to be pointing us back towards morality. In other words, before the world is going to say, we love our liberties and we love our free hookups and we're okay with irresponsible sexuality, before we're really going to turn our back on that, something else might really have to happen. In other words, perhaps there may be faster movements and quicker prophetic placements than the ones we've already seen. In two weeks, we walked the world shut down just two years ago. And what I'm suggesting to you today, that the pendulum swing of secular atheistic humanism that has taken us to 50 million, some say 60 million lives sacrificed in utero, if we've really reached the epigee, the zenith, the high point of the pendulum swing, is it possible the pendulum has already started to swing back? And what we're looking for is what we could call a neo-conservative Christian experience that is a setup for the final fear and the final death knells of religious liberty, including when you can go to church or if you choose not to go to church and what day you can worship on. I'm suggesting to you here this morning that as I watch and listen to the news, I find it very interesting that it appears that it appears that some of these ideas that have allowed things like millions and millions of lives to be sacrificed without much protest, that those things should be coming to the end in our society potentially. 
something more is going to have to happen because you can't just write or rewrite laws. And I'm here to suggest to you that there's something afoot. License has taken us so far in debauchery and debased character, but it appears to me the devil's final act will be under the oppression of a new morality with a new rightness without the authority of God's word and without the privilege of choice. Please think about it. But let's look at this just a little bit more. In 2019, approximately 19% of all U.S. pregnancies ended in abortion. According to the United Nations 2013 report, only nine countries in the world have a higher abortion rate than the United States. They are Bulgaria, Cuba, Estonia, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Romania, Russia, Sweden, and Ukraine. Now, I think it's very possible that somebody could hear this message, whether live or online, and be dealing with the trauma of the past. I want to assure you, if there's anybody listening to me here today who was part and partner in the premature ending of a life, God's grace is great and he forgives. And I don't want anybody listening to me here today feel that my job is to heap guilt on you for something that was a poor choice in the past. It was a wrong thing. God's grace is extended. This life and these lives are sacred. But I am here today as a part of the strengthening of God's people for the recalibration of love and family and femininity. And some of the things we talk about here today will challenge you if you have been that frog in the kettle without a living relationship to Christ in his word and without an appreciation and dependence on the principles and precepts of the spirit of prophecy. I am here today as a mouthpiece of beauty and truth of righteousness and right doing. And if something challenges you here today, I encourage you to go do something that might have been novel in your recent past, and that is pray and study and show yourself approved before God because I'm not your judge, and I'm not the final arbiter of right and wrong. In 2019, unmarried women accounted for 86% of all abortions. Among married women, 4% of 2019, that is the year 2019, pregnancies ended in abortion. Adolescents under the age of 15 obtained two-tenths of 1% of all abortions, and those that made it in the 15 to 19 years accounted for 8.5%. When we look at the statistics, we know that there are 40 states that require parental approval. And we also recognize that the abortion rate of metropolitan women is twice as high as those who live in non-metropolitan environments. The abortion rate of women with Medicaid coverage is three times as high as that of other. And in 2014, 30% of aborting women identified themselves as Protestant and 24% as Catholic. The state of Florida keeps very careful records and reasons for abortion. One one hundredth of a percent of pregnancies resulting from incestuous relationships were the reason for abortion in Florida in the year 2020. That's one one hundredth of a percent. Fifteen tenths of a percent were for sexual assault. Two tenths of a percent was the woman's life was endangered by the pregnancy. Almost 1% was there was a serious fetal abnormality. 
one and a half percent was the woman's physical health, and 1.86% was the woman's psychological health. That leaves 95.3%. Now, the reason I want you to pay attention to this is that while exceptions to the norm matter, the general rule is written for the general dynamic. So that means 20.4% aborted for social or economic reasons and 74.9% for no reason given or elective. That means 95% of the abortions in 2020 in Florida, which probably won't be too terribly atypical, were for virtually no good reason at all. What is the, the portrait of an abortion-minded woman? If all these statistics add up, then you may end up with a picture like this. This is only statistically accurate. It's not specifically accurate. Statistically, African-American women have a rate of abortion somewhere between two to three times higher. So she would be an African-American woman named Maria living in Baltimore. She's 23 years old and already has two young children, one named Michael. She's baptized Michael into the Catholic Church but hasn't been to church much since, and though she's always considered herself Catholic. Maria is unmarried and living below the poverty line. Michael's dad left just before she found out she was pregnant again. She works two jobs, but she's shouldered with the responsibility of her son and her aging mother, who is soon going to be unable to care for Michael when Maria's at work. The cost of childcare and nursing care will be heavy. At seven weeks pregnant, Maria goes to Planned Parenthood. She's reluctant to go through with the trauma of abortion, and she's heard that it is unpleasant, but she just can't figure out how to fit another baby into her crumbling world. I want you to hear that. It's not simple. And in some ways it is. So she faces it like everything else in her life lately, dash alone. Our society's in trouble. There's been a war on against the family for the last 50 years. And in preparing for this sermon, I've thought about so many times what I've said in dealing with issues of the family is that the war was on against fatherhood a long time ago. We went from my three sons and father knows best to dads being nothing but doofuses in every show that was called a sitcom. The very idea that there would be a man in the house that would create security and protection and prominence and peace for every other person in the home, this was considered a non-necessity. And for years, malehood has been a target of the liberal media, and I mean primarily Hollywood. But as I was thinking about this, it's not so much that a man being necessary to the concept of a family was important or valuable. The war against womanhood has been on for almost as long, too. 
But that war has looked a little bit different. In a backhanded sort of way, you have all of these waves of feminism, four waves, they say. Of course, I've only been alive for the last three. The first one took place in the era of our pioneers, and I'll reference to something Ellen White has to say about it before I'm done here. But the truth of the matter is, is that the war against womanhood has been on its way as well for just as many years. And for all of those women who grew up and moved into homes with men who are nothing but undisciplined big boys, I feel exceptionally sorry for those ladies. Because he who was supposed to be security can be the biggest insecurity in the home. And so in a backhanded sort of way, feminism has always defined itself against the leading role of men in a society. And it appears that it's been hard to liberate themselves from the definition of what true liberty is without comparing it to manhood. But along the way, with the ejection of the nuclear concept of family, came the new discoveries, the new liberties of womanhood. And those new liberties were to carry burdens, often by themselves. And of course, outside of an abusive situation, some of those liberties look pretty good. But the very subtle temptation to womanhood, which is not unlike that moment at the tree, has been the redefining of what the 21st century woman looks like. Not the least of which has been the enamorment that was there with the mystique of the serpent in the beginning. Take your Bibles and let's go there to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we find this amazing encounter that is deadly and dangerous, but not appearing to be so. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are separated. It was more casual than it was chosen, but it had a detrimental effect, none the least. It says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, I want you to understand something, ladies. If you want to protect love, respect the dignity of the treasure of your physical person because the fastest way to tank love is to give away for a cheap price what's supposed to be paid with a high treasure of commitment from a man. And if there's one thing this society's done, it's sought to make women think they are the outside package more than they are the inside package. And oh, how desperate every woman wants to hang on to that fleeting beauty. It doesn't seem to bother a man as much. But if you really want love, you better understand the treasure you are and not be beguiled by the supposed liberties that the world says you can take and still be happy or that somebody wants to take from you. Has God really said you can't do everything you want to do? Is liberty really the holy grail of happiness or is liberty sometimes bondage? Is liberty potentially licentiousness? And is it inside its proper sphere true freedom and joy? But letting the person who defines the steps of getting there be Lord can change the outcome rather distinctly. 
The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the trees which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you should not eat from it or touch it or you'll die. And the serpent said to the woman, that's not true. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And of course, every lie of the enemy is partially true and partially false, which makes them the best kind of lies and the worst kind of truth. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she was smitten. And it was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and she ate, and she gave it also to her husband and he ate. And I want you to know, generationally speaking, we've not gotten totally free from this because a man basically said, I don't need God, but I need you. And the woman didn't say, I don't need God. She just said, I want to be like him. And maybe that has a little something to do why most churches have more women sitting in the pews than they do men because the men actually sinned outright against God and the woman was deceived and sucked into it and did sin. But she wasn't saying, I want God before I want you, Adam. And so in all this discussion of generational sin, it might do us a little bit of good to recognize that we're still battling some of the initial challenges of life from some six millennia ago. May God help us. When we think about this woman of the Scriptures, I'd like to know where we got off with the idea that we needed the secular world to recalibrate what femininity looked like. And yes, our church has made some mistakes. It wasn't that there was a bad platform for the mistakes, but it is bad that they had to be taken to court to fix them. So things like equal pay for the same job done. But this afternoon, what I'd like for you to stop and think about is that inside God's construct of a man who's converted and a woman who's converted, you don't need to go to the world to get a better life because the best life and the best love is found inside the definitions of the divine. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn over to Proverbs 31. In Proverbs 31, where our scripture reading came from, we get the picture of a woman that I suspect most moderns would like to be, with a few exceptions. And most of those exceptions have to do with old school femininity. Uh, just a little insight on the heart of most men. And by the way, if you're sitting here today, I'm assuming you believe that Genesis 1 and 2 were actually that you actually need that hypothesis, which is fact, not fiction, and it's, it's truth, not guesswork. So Laplace could say, I may not, I don't need that hypothesis, but I'm suspecting here today that you consider Genesis 1 and 2 to be more than a hypothesis, and that both man and woman were made in God's image, and that they both have something to give which is somewhat complementary to each other, not contradictory. When we come to the storyline of Proverbs 31, the parts of it that even most postmoderns could accept are evident and easy to see. The parts that they would reject are right there in the very beginning. Verse 10, an excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. What's wrong with verse 10? Well, it's contextualized inside of a relationship to a man for the modern. Verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. 
Yes, the starting point for Solomon, whom we think wrote this, is such that the woman still has somewhat of a definition inside the relationship to the man. And of course, that's a choke moment for modern fourth wave feminism. But maybe it's not such a problem if you can find a converted man. You see, there is something about manhood that's looking for this fulfillment with something other and different and complementary not so absolute contradictory and not so absolutely defined in contradiction or contradistinction to what a man is. Can a woman be a woman and live a satisfying life? Verse 12, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. We still are hanging on to some of that connectedness. But let's go ahead and embrace what this strong, able-minded, confident woman looks like. Verse 13, she looks for wool and for flax, and she works with her hands in delight. In other words, there's purpose in her work. She may not have to put off child-rearing to become something that someone with broad strokes painted as a, a mystery to achieve, which might leave you waiting to achieve other things that were God-ordained inside of you that, that are worth achieving too, like the relational benefits and blessings of God-ordained matrimony. She's like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She doesn't have issues with logistics. Verse 15, she rises also while it's still night, gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She's running a sizable operation. She considers a field and buys it, a businesswoman. With her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. The Bible in no way suggests that somehow femininity in contrast to masculinity is inferior or to be stepped on. She girds herself with strength, makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp doesn't go out by night. She has an amazing commitment to her endeavors and a great worth ethic. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands to the spindle. She's practical as well as managerial. She extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the needy and she's also exceptionally compassionate. In all of her strength, she has not dawned toughness, but has retained tenderness. She's not full of hate for the opposite gender or for the traditional roles that might have some vestige of divinity woven into them in some ways. She's not afraid of the snow for her household. She knows how to plan. For all her household are scolded in clarlet. She's successful. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. For what? For this amazing, competent, capable, respectable woman. When he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. This woman is respectable without surrendering her femininity. This woman knows how to be strong and still be emotionally intimate with the opposite sex. She is not secondhand in her own mind by comparison to the one God made head of the household. She stands in her own right as a full-fledged partner, but she is part of the success of the home 
without any misgivings about how the two of them work together. And while ordinary marriages have to process all of that, they sure work a lot better when there's not this nagging doubt fed by feminism about who she is. People that are figuring themselves out too elementally are not ready to figure out what us or we or Mr. and Mrs. means. God does that with people. That's why our walk with God is so central to our success in everything, including maintaining a civil society built on a home where there's a dad and there's a mom, so the kid gets both. And if you're doing it on your own, more power to you. May God strengthen you and your church is here to help you. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. She looks well to the way of her household. Actually, verse 26, I could not mention, for, for, fail to mention, she opens her mouth in wisdom. Not in knee-jerk, visceral self-doubt and anger and frustration that she's a victim. No, she opens her mouth in wisdom. She knows who she is. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the way of her household, and she does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. Listen, friends, you may be blessed with children. You may not. You may be married. You may not. If you're listening to me today as a female, may God bless you as a, a sister, a mother, a daughter in Israel, whatever your phase of life is. But know this, this kind of beauty is for every woman listening to me here today and for all the ones who aren't here to hear about it. Many daughters have done nobly, but you exceed them all. And then we come down to the last verse, which is where we can sense where the devil might be attempting to take advantage of. His charm is deceitful, and beauty is fading. This version says, vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the product of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. In other words, let everybody talk about it. Let all the important people recognize it. And for some marriages, this is the Achilles heel. Because every success of one half of the gender divide is insecurity for the other. Only God can fix that and a lot of work in the relationship. But it's fixable, it's doable, and it's worth it because there's nothing like a well-vitalized harmony between the God-ordained complementary differences that are woven into oneness between feminine and masculine, between male and female. But if you want to do it the 21st century way without Christian in the title, you can do it. You just might end up being something that you were contorted into that you never intended to be. I got a newsletter within a few hours of doing some research on abortion. I got this newsletter, so I don't know how I'm being trolled, but I am. And it, it was sent by a, it's an anti-abortion newsletter. If my assumptions are correct, the author states, the Supreme Court will not rule on the question of the right to life of the child in the womb unless it accepts a case that is centered on that very question. If, in the meantime, should something like the Alito draft hold, there will be no federal position on the child's right to life. 
I want you to think about these things, folks. Post-Roe, if it comes to that, two things remain as challenges. First, the need for a robust recognition of the right to life for a child in law and by society. And second, outreach to more and more women who face unwanted pregnancies and are attempted to terminate them. Many women feel trapped into Planned Parenthood's one and only plan. The reasonableness for accepting responsibility for any human life one is brought into being, even if only until birth followed by the child's adoption, has been thoroughly weakened by five decades of living under the dark cloud of Roe v. Wade and the assumption that sex without consequences for its results is a basic human right. Yet we haven't had any real discussions about what, what the right to life means. Reproductive rights, he writes, should have something to do with the right to reproduce or not reproduce. And I think all of us could say amen to that. But it has nothing to do with abortion. Any candidate for abortion has already reproduced a child. So that rhetorical ploy should fail for anyone with a brain or a conscience. Follow the science has been push, used to push radical agendas, but it's absent when it comes to pro-abortion arguments which ignore the fact of a human being in utero. I don't want my church to be the tail and not the head on issues that relate to the modern-day equivalent of handing our children off to Molech. And since 95% of abortions, if the statistical data plays out to be true, as projected from the Florida numbers, we have got collective societal guilt on our hands, blood guilt on our hands, that we need to do some serious thinking about. And if our society is poised to watch an amazing swing back to the right relative to religion, we might have a lot of evangelizing to do that might require a lot of highly vitalized marriages that might require some new definitions of what it means to be male and female inside of the context of something that's divinely ordained called marriage. And let me just throw this out. Actually, no, let's go a little bit more. I'm not going to go much longer, but go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's just take a second or two here before we're done, and that way it's not Pastor Kelly's ramblings. It's biblical. It says in 1 Peter chapter 3, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, I call this one of the most powerful challenges and promises in the Bible. In effect, what he's saying in the midst of a pagan Roman empire, that should you come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ but your husband has not, you have the ability to turn him around without nagging, without a lot of talking, without a lot of cajoling or conflicting or arguing. What I want you to see, Peter says, is that you've got power with Jesus and it's feminine and divine that your, verse 2, chaste and respectful behavior has the ability to get them looking differently, not only at you, but at the cosmos because of the amazing beauty that's in you. 
Your adornment must not be merely external, the braiding of the hair and the wearing of gold jewelry or the putting on of dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, is that saying that every woman has to have the same temperament type? Not hardly. But what it is saying is that every home is not a two-headed monster where they're both vying to be the head. And what it is showing is that a woman inside the construct of divine direction can be fully equal and in a complementary relationship not vying to be the one that is holding the reins. You have the ability to show these unconverted people how loyal you are to them and how careful you are with your words and your behavior. But they'll notice that your ultimate loyalty is to God. If you read the Colossians record of submission in Colossians 3.18, it says, be submitted to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 4, but let it be the hidden person of the heart which is imperishable. Verse 5, for in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Now I want you to know something. Either the home is a two-headed beast where there's constant consternation or there's room for one person to sit in the saddle and it is a headship of the father in perfect partnership with the mother and the wife but if this submission thing is all poppycock, sociologically time-based, culturally conditioned stuff, then we've got the right answers in the 21st century. But if it's divinely imbued by a divine order and it's perfect equality with different roles, then living with it and living by it might really help us understand our rights, our roles, and our responsibilities. And there might be a fruitfulness that the world needs to see. It wasn't but a generation or two ago that most wedding vows actually had in the promises to love, honor, and obey. And I doubt that 5%, I doubt that 1%, I doubt that one-tenth of 1% of the wedding vows today include the word obey. I know it. We're so conditioned that our grandmothers would promise to obey and the granddaughters would die before they'd stand at the altar and say the word. It might have something to do with the quality of the men now. It might also have something to do with the fact that we've been beholding the wrong places and we've got the wrong definitions. Verse 6, if we've got to use the word, let's let the Bible use it. We're supposed to adorn ourselves if we're ladies. You're supposed to on the inside with submission. Verse 6, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Well, that's frightening, isn't it, to promise to obey somebody? <laughs> yeah. I'd go slow to the altar, too. I'd go a lot slower to the bed. We've got people joining their bodies without joining their hearts. You know what the outcome is? Rapid journey to the divorce lawyer. 
escalating numbers of children without dads or without fathers, I should say. What am I trying to say this morning? And by the way, I do need to say this before I sit down. Whether it's 1 Timothy chapter 2 or it's 1 Peter chapter 3 or whether it's Proverbs 31, all of those places talk about how women dress. And I know this came up a few Sabbaths ago and I got some feedback. <laughs> Just let me ask you this. Does a prostitute dress a certain way for a certain purpose? Okay. Then maybe we should dress a different way for a different purpose. Are there bazillions of men addicted to pornography? Women too. Is the word modesty still practical for the dynamics of love? Huh? Come on. Doesn't the Bible say that your streams shouldn't run in the street? Doesn't the Bible warn us? Does modesty have any dynamic for love? There's a Sabbath subject to think about. Maybe modesty is what protects love and emotional bonding and emotional closeness. And maybe giving that guy what he wants as he tries to cheapen you is exactly the wrong thing to do. And maybe you need to be reminded today you are a treasure beyond measure. And so maybe we'll end this message here with verse 7 of 1 Peter 3. This seems like a good place. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, means physically, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will be listened to. I've told this before, but I'll tell it again. I have four children, three boys and then a girl, and they'd all go around saying, all, all the people that would see my young daughter growing up, would say, oh, the boys better watch out. She's got three older brothers. Uh-uh. The boys better watch out. She's got a daddy. <laughs> the world's trying to cheapen every woman that's listening to me here today. You're not to present yourself, ladies, like the world says, present yourself. You're supposed to have a beauty that only Jesus can give you on the inside that maximizes the beauty on the outside. I saw a young woman the other day, and I want to tell you, when she smiled, her beauty just went up by 10 times. That joy Christ puts in your heart. I want to praise the Lord this morning for a godly mother who wasn't too godly in the sense of religion, but she held principles about honesty and respect and hard work, and she stuck with my dad through some pretty dismal moments, but she made my dad respect her, but she didn't reject him, and he had a few rejection moments, I'm going to tell you. And she actually said to me, he's still your dad. She knew how to hit the right note. She had her arm around love and commitment. And by the way, commitment is the great safety net for love. And they stayed married 50 plus years. My dad is 
resting in the grave right now. My mother is still very much alive. And if there's a reason for any vitality and health in this preacher, it started with one woman, and then I left that woman and put my hand in the hand of another woman who's a fountain and whom I respect like nobody else on the face of this planet, is fully my partner. And after 36 years of marriage, we are way more in love than we were when we stood at the altar on June 2 of 1985. I'm here to tell you today, God's way is the only way that works. Society is perilously close to an implosion. And I'm calling godly men or men back to God to be the kind of house band that would create security that would allow a woman to be fulfilled and strong and successful. And I'm calling women to understand God has a definition of femininity. It includes all kinds of opportunity, but you never release compassion and tenderness, and you don't give up on the definition of a femininity to become the real you. And you don't display yourself like a hunk of flesh, and you do carry yourself with a little bit of reserve. The world notices that inner spark, that inner beauty, and it's matched up with how you talk and how you dress and the quality of who you are and what you do. I didn't get around to what Ellen White said. She wasn't very big on the first wave of feminism. I'm going to tell you that. You can look it up yourself. She especially was down on the spirit that possessed the movement. And while acquiring voting rights and property, I'm sure she would see nothing wrong with the spirit of the movement, she saw lots wrong with it. And she did believe it was a woman's right to be enshrined like a queen in the home where she reigns. I'm using her words. <laughs> yes, Christians have the best marriages when Christ is really in the hearts of the two. And women have the most respect when they know they're a child of God, a valuable treasure, and capable of all kinds of things, some yet to be discovered. We don't need the world defining what womanhood is, and we can't stand aside while the world sacrifices unnumbered baby boys and baby girls to the altar of convenience. May God help us as a people, and may we be paying attention prophetically, for indeed we might find ourselves rapidly on the return to religion. And it might be that all of this about Samuel Alito and the leaked draft is nothing more than a little wake-up call that the world's getting ready to turn hard right. And when it does, COVID will look like child's play. And Sunday laws and the mark of the beast will be upon us. May God help us to be the people we're supposed to be in our individual masculinity or femininity and in our relationships with each other. And may our prayers not be hindered, men, because we don't know how to do what we're supposed to do to make life fulfilling, satisfying, secure, and safe for the women that are in our lives. May God help those that are coming up through the ranks. May God bless those that are engaged. May God bless those who are single. May we have mothers in Israel who produce a, a subset of society that's functional and fruitful and happy. And may it start again here today and may it be reaffirmed again this weekend. Amen.